Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Um, my name is Chris Causey. If you're new here today, I'm so glad you're here. I'm the lead pastor, and um, today I get to continue a series that we started a few weeks ago um, called Love Dates and Heartbreaks. And today, uh, probably going to, if you're new, just to give you a little disclaimer, teaching style-wise, I'm probably going to be a little different um, because I think there's something special about relationships. Like, you can feel really confident. You can be really educated. You can be really wealthy. You can walk into a room and solve problems, command decisions. People stand up when you step in. Like, the world could literally revolve around you. And yet, if you are failing in your relationships, it is one of the most powerless, frustrating desperate places to ever be because no amount of money no amount of power no amount of control education reputation possessions can make someone else do what you want them to do like people are insanely unsufferably incontrollable and yet we love them and we want to be in a relationship with them. And this goes beyond just romantic spheres, right? If you um, were ever parented, you know that you didn't always get along with your parents. If you've got kids, you sometimes wonder, especially if you have multiple kids, are they secretly meeting to conspire? Because today seemed doubly bad. And it was like they were working together to drive me mad. And so what I want to do today is really kind of build off of that song that we just heard, right? Like, I'm not enough unless you come. I think one of the few things that make me say that is relationships. When I don't know what to do, when I don't know how to go forward. It's one of the most painful pieces. Right? When we were growing up, we all remember our first heartbreak. And you discover that emotional, relational pain can hurt worse than a broke arm. I mean, even researchers have found that Tylenol can be taken and help reduce emotional pain. Because our brain feels it in a way that is invisible to the outside world, but so tangible to the inside one. And so I want to take you to a story today that on the surface, just to give you a disclaimer, will not look like it has anything to do with you, your relationship struggles. In fact, when I begin this story, the first inclination in you is to be like, whoa, this is really alien to where we are culturally today. Um, but I want you to like lean in with me because there's a lot happening in the moment that I want us to look at and there's a lot that you and I can learn from. In fact, I think what we're about to see in this story is probably one of the most essential kind of critical steps and decisions you'll ever make when it comes to relationships. And it's going to build, like I said, the, this last week and this week is all about you and me because you and me are the only people we can actually control fully. The only ones that we're truly responsible for. We have responsibilities to other people, but we're responsible for ourselves. 
And so that's a critical distinction. And so in the next couple weeks, we'll talk about communication and conflict and even irreconcilable differences. But today I want to hopefully impart to you through this story that is thousands of years old, this um, critical step, all right? So it's found in Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. It's one of the oldest books of the Bible, but it's not the oldest book. That actually, um, that kind of superlative belongs to the book of Job, which is the oldest book in the Bible. But Genesis was a part of a five-volume set that was the foundation for the Jewish faith um, that's still read today in Jewish synagogues around the world. It's called the Torah. Genesis is the beginning. In fact, the, the book is all about the beginning of the universe. It's about the beginning of God's redemptive pursuit of humanity, and it's about the beginning of the Jewish race, specifically through a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah. And the story in the book of Genesis kind of turns at Abraham and begins to focus specifically on him, his bloodline, his children, their family, their very dysfunctional family. And where I want to jump in today is a moment in the life of Abraham's grandchildren. The thing that you need to know is this is thousands of years old. And when I teach the 112, which is our spiritual foundations course here, one of the things that I'll one of the things that I do is I teach people how to read the Bible. So for those who were going through it last week, I introduced you to the big idea about how to understand and kind of it's a really a literary skill of reading. And then this week, I'll kind of be leaning in to talk about how do we read the Bible in a way that's devotional, that strengthens our own personal faith, whereas last week was really like how to understand the Bible, because it is cross-culturally thousands of years old. And so there's some, some tools that we need to overcome some of those barriers. And one of the tools that I'll talk about this week that you all get a, as a freebie is the idea of prescriptive, descriptive language in the Bible. Not everything the Bible says is prescriptive. Sometimes the Bible is merely giving you a descriptive detail, right? It's not, and what we're about to see in the very first sentence is not a prescriptive command. It is descriptive. Prescriptive means that this is something you should do. Descriptive is this is what happened. And a lot of times in the Bible, especially in descriptive passages, because they're narratives, they're written from a report, they're kind of an unfolding story, there's not always running commentary in narratives where God's like, let me interject here and tell you that this is wrong, this isn't right, right? Because if that was the case, the Bible would be like a hundred times bigger than it currently is because you and I are pretty good at doing things wrong. I don't know if you've discovered that ability about you. I've discovered that ability about me a long time ago. So there's not always running commentary of don't do this, do this, which can be a challenge when you're reading the Bible, especially in certain passages. That's why we have the 112, right? So here's at the beginning, Genesis 32, verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives. In case you were wondering what I was about to talk about, descriptive, prescriptive, that is the passage, the two wives, okay? So this is not like, oh, I should obey the Bible and have two wives. No, this is not God telling the world they need to have, like, multiple spouses. This is not a TLC TV show that's waiting to happen. Like this is just a jacked up situation a really long time ago because even people who are trying to figure out the God thing can, can, can mess it up. 
So here's Jacob, and he's got his two women and his two female servants. We're not even going to touch that one, okay? That's like really jacked up descriptive, okay? And his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok, which, by the way, has nothing to do with the message, but when I, every time I read that, it just sounds like a Star Wars, Mandalorian, like, scene, right? We must go fight them at the ford of the Jabbok, right? I mean, it just feels like that whenever I read it. Anyways, sorry, random. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So here's the thing you need to know about this moment that's really important. Because this moment is, uh, is about to get a little crazier than the two wives, the two female servants, and the 11 sons. And the Mandalorian fight scene that he's currently set up at. Right? It's, this moment is one of Jacob's most terrifying moments in life. You see, when he was younger, Jacob, whose name actually means deceiver, hill grabber, manipulator, liar, con man, When he was younger, um, Jacob always wanted the finer things. He wanted more in life. And his brother, because of the ancient Near East culture they were growing up, if you were the oldest um, and you had one other sibling, you got two-thirds of the inheritance, and your younger sibling got one-third, right? So all the older kids in the room just was like, what's up with that, right? We feel like we've got robbed. But all the younger kids are like, man, I'm glad we got that worked out because that's really jacked up too, descriptive, not prescriptive. And so Jacob is growing up looking at Esau. They're twins, and he's like, he beat me by a few seconds. It shouldn't even count. He doesn't even care, right? And so Jacob orchestrates and manipulates literally a legal transfer, And if you were here about a month ago, Dallas Darnell did a phenomenal job of unpacking that story for you. And that moment, that interchange where Jacob manipulates Esau results in a terrible riff relationally. If your sibling stole what would have been roughly the equivalent of millions of dollars from you in inheritance... Would you want to invite them over for Thanksgiving? So naturally, what does Jacob do? Jacob runs because Esau wants to kill him because then he gets all of it. He's like, fine, you want to take my third? I'm just going to take all of the thirds. So Jacob and Esau have fled. Like Jacob's fled from Esau, and he has spent the rest of his life getting married and raising a family. And while he's been doing that, he's continually lied, manipulated, deceived, and been a con man. And he's built this huge financial empire for himself. And God is orchestrating something. And now Jacob is returning back to his homeland. And he gets word, hey, your brother is coming down the road with 400 men with him. I'm just saying, if the sibling that you robbed millions of dollars from in a deceitful, manipulative fashion, who you haven't seen for decades, and you were told he's coming towards you on the road with 400 men, what is your first thought? Is this like, oh, this is going to be awesome, right? This is going to be like an Oprah moment where... 
it's all hugs, and you get a car, and you get a goat, and you get a goat, right? And it's, everybody's happy and grand. Or is this Jerry Springer? Like, is this about to go down with Esau and 400 of his buddies? And so Jacob's terrified to the point that he sends his family and his possessions away because he's come up with a plan that is about to metaphorically materialize in the battle he has. Jacob decides he's going to send all of his sheep, all of his goats in these packets. One, so that the first wave hits, and it's, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of goats, which you have to realize is like the ancient equivalent of like $100 bills, y'all. Right, like this is like, He's, he's letting it, I mean, it's just flowing. So it's like the first, it's like straight up printing. I mean, you got goats in the ancient Near East, it's like printing cash, okay, people? Like your dollar bills don't have babies. Their dollar bills did, okay? And so this is just a good thing, and it's rolling, and it's happening. And so they flow up, and Jacob's, um, Esau's like, what is this? And it's like, this is from your servant, Jacob. And then, after that group passes, then another wave Hundreds and hundreds again come in front of him. Happens four times because Jacob is trying to win Esau back over. And so all this is kind of happening simultaneously, and it doesn't feel like it has a lot to do with our life. But so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. So I love that. I mean, if your brother with 400 dudes is headed towards you, you're all by yourself, you go to lay down, and all of a sudden someone jumps out and turns it into like ultimate fighting championship with you on the riverbank, what's your default? Like, you're like, this is an assassin, this, my brother has hired someone to come and kill me. And so Jacob does something extraordinary. Jacob fights him, and he keeps fighting him. And it says that when the man saw that he could not overpower him, so this, this battle has gone for a long time, and Jacob has a lot of fight. He has a lot of struggle. He has a will to survive, which is actually underneath the surface the entire time of Jacob's life. Con men, like Jacob, I, I picture, have you ever watched a movie where there's like, an epic struggle, and there's like the rat character, you know, the one that's like on this side, and then they turn, and they, then they get on the other side, because at the end of the day, all they want to do is survive. So they'll manipulate and con, and it's all the game. I just want to survive. That's Jacob. He has this strong, strong will to survive, and he'll do whatever it takes to survive and to have it good while he's doing it. And so this character trait's manifesting itself for the first time in a good way. He's fighting. And he's not letting go. And it, this is where the story turns and we realize something deeper is happening here. Because this is clearly not an assassin. This is not a henchman from Esau. Because it says, when he saw that he could not overpower him, not physically, but that Jacob had a fight inside of him and he wasn't going to surrender. You know, it's like the, it's just the flesh wound, you know, that moment where it's like, you cut off my arm, but I'm still going to fight because it was just the flesh wound. Like, he's like, this dude is crazy. He's not going to give up. 
And to make the point who's actually stronger, this feels so validating for me as a father. He says he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with him, right? There's this, like, I have kids, and I don't know what it is about small kids that look at big men, but they're like, I can take them, you know? And so, you know, my daughter comes home some days. She's like, I want to wrestle. And I'm like, babe, she's like, Daddy, I want to fight you. I'm, Why? I'm like, I'm like three times your size. I want to fight. Let's go. I'm like, what is wrong with you? You know, I've got a two-year-old who's the same way. Like, they're just scrappy little things, and they just want to fight. And as a good father, I will let it kind of look like it could go either way. And at a certain point when I realized, okay, they're not going to back out of this thing, I need to remind them that I am the paterfamilias that I am the strong one, that I am the, I'm the silverback gorilla at the zoo that's like this. Like, look. So you just pick them up. You do something to demonstrate that, like, no, no, I'm actually still in control. I've just been letting you think you had a chance. This is exactly what happens here. Because after all of that wrestling, it says that he, boop, on his hip. And it was instantly out of place. And all of a sudden, the man says, let me go for it is daybreak. He's not a vampire. He's not concerned about the sunlight hitting him. He's like, the time has come for what Jacob's getting ready to step into. And he says, but Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Because Jacob has this realization when the man touches his hip that he is in the presence of something far more powerful than just a man. And he's like, no. Now, what's interesting is if you were here when Dallas taught this, you'll know that what was Jacob after? The blessing from Esau. All these things that had been the defining things about Jacob, that were all of these indictments, these character traits, they're showing back up but con men are really famous for not fighting. Right? Liars don't stick around when they get caught. So this is why the ancient readers, when they read this story, would have understood something is happening that's significant. So the man asked them, what is your name? Again, kind of a weird question. Right? We just had Ultimate Fighting Championship, and then you uncover the fact that you're actually like this master-level ninja because you threw my hip out of place after you decided to touch it. Like, what is up with this? And then you ask me my name? And it's on purpose because his name is Jacob, con man, deceiver, liar, manipulator, hill grabber. And he said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. I don't think as 21st century English readers, the weight of this sentence hits you and me the way it would have hit Jacob. Because Jacob will say in just a couple passages, he's going to rename this location a Hebrew phrase that meant face-to-face -face with God. Jacob knows he's not wrestling the rock 
Like he's wrestling the one the psalmist would say was the rock. He knows it's a completely different level. And that this is God. And that the weight of God saying over Jacob, Jacob, you're no longer the deceiver. You're no longer defined by your cons, by your lies, by the manipulations, by the harm you've done to others. That is no longer the declaration over your life. He says, because your name is now Israel. Because he finally did something that he'd never done before. He actually struggled. He leaned in. And he came face to face, not just with God, but with the most difficult human you'll ever fight. Yourself. Jacob, for the first time in his life, was finally coming face to face with himself in the moment that he's wrestling with God. And the ancient Hebrew writers, everything about this is this really symbolic moment. Jacob is standing on the threshold, the shoreline of the promised land. On the other side of the stream, is the promised land, which for the ancient Jewish people and to modern Jewish people, we call it Israel, right? That was the most significant gift God had ever given his people. It was the most significant space on planet earth. And Jacob was literally standing in this metaphorical place where he had to come to terms with the only way he could confess the only way he could go into the promised land was to confront that one core problem he had dealt with his entire life. So I was listening to a leadership coach this week, um, and he was talking about, they were talking about how do we help people solve problems. And one of them, who's a a famous author, threw out, well, I think part of the challenge is people have 3,000 problems. So how do you figure that out? And how do you figure out which one to help them in? And the other one, who's also a famous author, pastor out in L.A., said, I, I think your numbers are backwards. I don't think the challenge is to figure out which one of the 3,000 problems they need to solve. I think the challenge, really, in most people's life is that they do not have 3,000 problems. They have one problem that keeps showing up in 3,000 different areas of their life. And that tendency, that kind of bent, that brokenness in them keeps popping up in this relationship and this relationship and in their workplace and their finances. And it's like, I think a better way of helping people is to help them solve the one problem in the 3,000 areas. And what we see with Jacob and that has so much impact for this Love, Dates, and Heartbreak series that whether we're talking about romantic relationships or not, what Jacob does that's so critical is when you zoom out, you see the story, you recognize metaphorically he's face-to-face with God and with himself. And the only thing separating him from the promised land is his decision to finally resolve to solve that problem. I think that decision of like, no, I'm resolved. I'm going to solve this thing. 
is essential for any of us to move into any kind of promised land in our life, but especially to those better places relationally. So um, in 1962, two grad students were hiking in the Peruvian mountains. They were there because they wanted to see what was kind of famously known as Glacier 511. Now, Glacier 511 is a magnificent glacier up in the Peruvian mountains. And when the graduate students got to the glacier, they had this profound, terrifying realization. This glacier is on the threshold of collapse. This thing is loaded with cracks. And if something jolts it, it's coming down. So they come out of the mountains and down into the valley because the glacier sat above the hillside of this populated valley. And they came back into the valley trying to warn the authorities about what they'd discovered. The authorities listened to them, got angry, and threw them in jail for inciting a panic. For two weeks, they sat in jail, and the only way they eventually got out was when they recanted that Glacier 511 was filled with cracks and was just waiting to crash down off the mountain. May 31st, 1970, an earthquake hits Peru and that region. And that little jolt finally comes. Glacier 511 floods down the mountain at breakneck speeds with enough debris to fill both Gillette Stadium and the TD Garden to the top and overflow. As it races down the mountain, it begins to completely destroy homes. And by the time it's finished, 74,000 people have lost their life. 143,000 people are missing. And a million people are homeless. To this day, that avalanche is still the world's worst avalanche in terms of devastation in human history. And this thing completely ripped apart lives. But I think that this avalanche is actually, the whole story of this avalanche is quite telling, and it was present in Jacob's life, and it's present in our lives too. Because the question that naturally comes up is, well, I want to, okay, resolve to solve. That's great. Okay, so I should probably lean into my problems instead of running away from them. Okay, that's really simple 101 stuff, Chris. But here's the thing about this avalanche, about your life, and whether it's the pandemic or whether it's the 9-11 report that came out. We're not surprised oftentimes by the things that crash down in our lives. Right? This is why the resolve to solve skill is so essential, because most crashes begin as cracks. And when we ignore the cracks in our relationship, in our finances, in our habits, in our decisions, when we ignore the cracks, what you and I all know but sometimes live disconnected from is that problems that are ignored do not grow, they do not go away, they keep growing. So they finally one day destroy everything in the way. And what I want to do today, and the reason I said this is a little different, is I kind of want to put on a little bit of a different hat and and help you because I want to persuade you resolve to solve is, is like the first critical step 
and building a great relationship because cracks are constantly forming in any relationship because we're broken people trying to love and engage broken people. Our default is misunderstandings, right? There is confusion. There is a lack of clarity. Life happens. Things get busy. We text one thing that comes across another way. We say something, and because we're frustrated at what happened at work, the way it comes out of our mouth comes across biting and cutting and demoralizing to the person we just said it. Like we lash out, we spill over, and we create toxicity. We are natural crack makers. Like we just do that. And the resolve to solve means that we, we become people who pay attention to the cracks in our life because if not, they will turn into crashes in our life. And like the avalanche, when the crashes come, they never just take you out. They have devastating effects downstream. And so I want to give you a tool that I think can help you answer the question, where are the cracks? It's a tool that maybe for some of you, you're like, I do not have time for that. Or I, I don't even, I'm not even convinced resolving to solve problems and cracks when I see them is important. So that's okay. You can just take notes for someone else who you want them to deal with the problems because it's frustrating for you in your life. Right? But this tool, if worked, will work. So the way you start is, uh, and I've got this as a PDF. I'm going to tell you how to get in a second. So for those who were about to take a picture, you don't have to. Um, you're going to create a little chart, or you can draw this in a journal, or you can just print off the PDF that I'm going to give you on the link. And you're going to have a life domain, right, these different areas of your life, me, family. And family doesn't just mean like spouse or kids. It's like just it's broad. So all these are really broad so that you can say, where, what's my circle? What's my life domain? What's in, I'm in the middle of it. Right? Faith, where you are in that journey of faith, whether you're a Christian or whether you're processing Christianity or, or just God in general. Work and then community, like your relational connection, just and kind of broad. So life domain. And then you're going to write across the top, working, broken, confusing, missing. And you're just going to take a snapshot of your life. You're going to say, okay, me, what's working? I'm working. Yeah, I'm working. Right? And so, you know, you're just kind of filling this thing out, and you're like, what's broken? You're like, well, you know, my sleeping habits, I keep going to bed late. I'm not getting enough sleep, or I need to be exercising, right? That's, or, you know, confusing. What's really confusing for me right now is like, where am I going with this job? Where am I, you know, so you're just kind of working through these different categories. And after you've worked through the categories, then you're going to do this. You're going to label each one of the squares, specifically the broken, confusing, missing, because this is about cracks and preventing crashes. And you're going to label it with one of three letters. You're going to put an N for you have no control over it. Because there are some things, some problems, some pressures in your life that you have absolutely no control over. And that's an important thing to realize. Then... P for partial control, which is almost every relationship that you have, okay, unless it's a Roomba or, or Siri, okay? So unless it's a robot, it's just a P. And then full control, F. And so you're going to go through this section here and just quickly jot, is this an N, P, or an F? And then you're going to identify the most 
emotionally draining solvable squares. You're going to say, okay, this, because not all of the problems, not all of the cracks have the, have the like looming urgency to potentially turn into a crash. Not all the cracks you even feel, right? And so what you want to do is you want to identify the areas that you feel the pain the most. Because naturally, it's easier to create an urgency for you internally, but it's also the thing that's creating a drag on you through life. And when you solve one of these, it creates a little bit of momentum emotionally for you because now you've been freed up. And so you're looking for Fs or Ps in one of these camps. And ideally, you're going to take the three that you have, and you're then going to say those three circled squares brainstorm strategies slash solutions to remove them. Now, I say strategies because not every problem in your life um, is a problem that can be solved. Some of them are tensions that have to be managed, right? If you have a toddler, that is not a problem you can solve. That is a tension you manage, okay? And it's okay that you call them a tension you manage, right? Because what happens when you treat them like a problem that can be solved? It doesn't work. You get frustrated. You get irritated. You get more emotionally kind of exhausted by the thing. But when you embrace, this is a tension. This season is a tension to manage. Maybe you're an accountant and you are staring at the beginning of the, the black hole that is this season right now because of taxes looming. And this is a tension that you manage in this season. Maybe you're walking through a struggle with health or with a family member, right? And you know that it's not something you can wave a magic wand and solve. So the tensions to manage really are more strategies. You're like, okay, how do I make sure that I'm giving my best, that I'm showing up my best? Like, so you're processing through, like, how do I make sure I'm not being depleted or drained, or how do I create spaces where I can recharge because they're about to drive me crazy right now. So that's what you're focused on. And then you're going to just fill it out over here. And then what you have, just pick one of them once you've done that, is you have some potential action plans to solve and to, to lean into some of the cracks that are starting to form in your life. Now, there's nothing magical about this tool, right? What was helpful for Jacob was God was kind of pushing Jacob to finally confront Esau. And so this is a tool where I think it just kind of helps push you to identify the things that you need to deal with. Because what we all know is it's possible to repair a crack. It is not possible to repair a crash. And what I know about all of us is that every time I've ever stood in the aftermath of a crash in my life, I am filled with regret that I didn't address the crack when it started to form. Every single time. And I always say, man, I won't do that again. I wish I could go back in a time machine. Because four years ago, I could have fixed that. And now all I can do today is clean it up. Because it's done. And so this tool, I hope, is a help for you. 
I've made it available at encounterchurch.com forward slash tool. It's also available inside the app in the message notes. Um, it's one that if you can develop the rhythm of doing it, maybe once every few months, I think what you'll find is that you continue to kind of keep a really good survey of where cracks are forming in your life. And you start to kind of feel like you're winning a little bit more. Because the things that ultimately crash down on us are usually not surprises to us when it happens. We knew they were coming. We just hadn't resolved that we're going to solve it. And what Jacob does in that moment when God makes him confront his problem is this powerful, inspirational, redemptive moment that I think, especially as Christians, reminds us that there's so much more than us just filling out a graph and dealing with a problem. There's one part of the story I just want to leave you with because I think you need to know that this is bigger than just you and you dealing with your issues and you leaning into relationships. So remember I told you there was like these consecutive waves, so a thousand plus um, farm animals are eventually sent to Esau. I don't know what Jacob's and Esau, what the net worth was that day when they took their father's blessing. But I do know that what Jacob sent to Esau that day was worth an incredibly large amount of money today. And so it had to be at least close to what Esau and Jacob had felt like they had gotten robbed that day. And so he's sending wave after wave after wave, and then Jacob begins to send his family members. Those wives, the female servants, the children, they come after the animals. And then finally, they meet. And the very last moment, Genesis 33, 7, next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. And last of all, came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. When I was studying this passage, that sentence jumped out at me. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is so much bigger than just us helping to prevent crashes in our own life. This is about the reality that there's people watching our lives too. You see, fast forward, both chapter and time, and Jacob's sons are going to manipulate and con their father. The older ones who watched Jacob do that for so many years to their uncle Laban. And they're going to set up ultimately what becomes 13 years of little Joseph growing up in a foreign land, in prison, enslaved. And eventually Joseph, this little boy here, Joseph, right? It's a young elementary kid, Joseph. Eventually will find himself in a throne room as one of the most powerful people in all of Egypt. And his brothers are sitting across from him. Man. And Joseph had all the power in the world. He could have killed them. He could have had them arrested. He could have turned them into slaves. And what does he do? He reconciles with them. He forgives them. And he restores the family. And eventually, the entire family 
He's able to come back together. And when I was reading that and I got to that sentence, I was like, oh my goodness. What if what you see in Genesis 49 and 50, because that's the chapters that focus on that moment. What if Joseph learned how to do that in 49 and 50 from what he watched play out that day as a little tiny boy in Genesis 33? There are eyes watching you and me. Eyes that we won't even know on this side of eternity. Who literally are learning how to take their cues on what to do from what they see you and I do. Good or bad. And imagine our loved ones, our co-workers, and the lessons that they learn by watching us lean into our problems. Some of you who are struggling and you feel like the weight of the world's pressing down on you and you feel like there's, it's never going to be breakthrough, it's just it's breakdown just waiting to happen. You could be literally in the middle of a miracle story that will become the story they tell themselves long after you're gone to inspire them. There's so much more at stake than us just stopping the crashes in our own life. It's also that we end up empowering people to realize that there was a God of Jacob who's still in the business of redeeming and restoring and repairing relationships. Which is what, over the next few weeks, as we wrap up this series, we're going to turn to. Because all of us, all of us can get better at repairing and restoring. And that's where we go next. But before then, let's pray and deal with today and the call to be people who resolve to solve the problems and the tensions in our lives. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you do and how you do it and the invitation for us to step into the storyline that you are creating with the God of Jacob. As the God of Jacob in that moment wrestling with him, showing him in that very symbolic place of him coming face to face with you and face to face with himself and eventually face to face with his brother. So help us to be people, Father, who see with deep clarity the areas in our lives where cracks are forming. Give us the courage and the resolve to lean into those areas of our lives to prevent crashes. And Father, for the ones who are in the midst of crashes right now, thank you that as the God of Jacob, you still are still in the business of repair and restoring. And so may we in our final moments with you today in our closing song be refreshed with that power and that reminder. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to close up with just a song because here's the, the thing. I recognize for some of us this whole discussion around cracks and crashes, um, you're, you're, you're already living in the aftermath of a crash. 
And this would have been really helpful maybe three, four years ago. But today, you just are standing in the aftermath of the destruction. Maybe it's the destruction in your romantic life. Maybe it's the destruction in just what feels like your career and where you are. Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe it's in the area of health. I don't know. But what I want to leave with you today is a reminder that the fact is that God, for throughout the rest of human history, would intentionally choose. Because he doesn't do this with Abraham. Because Abraham's original name was Abram. But he doesn't say, I'm the God of Abram. He says, I'm the God of Abraham. But then he gets to his grandson. And he doesn't say, I'm the God of Israel. He says, I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the God of the screw-ups, the mess-ups, the ones who've run, who've fled, who've destroyed, who've abandoned, who've cheated, who've rebelled. As if somehow he wanted us to know for the rest of existence that he's not just the God of the repaired, but he's the God of those who are still in need of repair of the ones who are still wandering confused, of the ones who still are walking in the aftermath of their decisions and their destruction. And then Jesus steps on the earth and and demonstrates that he's not just the God of Jacob. He's the God of the empty tomb too. And that today you and I could walk by a tomb that does not have a body in it. Because the body that was placed in it was raised up from the dead. Because our God can still bring life out of what looks like death. He can still bring resurrection out of funerals in our lives. So whatever season, whatever aftermath, whatever threshold and avalanche you're standing in, the God of the mountain is still there too. And he still is doing his work. He's still sustaining. He's still guiding. And this song that we want to close out today is just such a declaration of that. A song that, that says it is well. In the aftermath of the avalanche, it is well because the God who is over all things is with me. He's still in control. He's still the God of Jacob. He still associates with people like you and people like me, even in our worst moments. How freeing and powerful is that? He's not done with you. He's not done with your story. And for some of us today, we just need to plant a flag in the ground that says, okay, God, it is well. So I invite you to stand.